Welcome, everybody, to Fanboy Planet After Dark. This is a little extra concept we've come up with to uh, supplement our regular podcast. And uh, instead of our usual bullpen-style podcast where everyone chimes in, we thought we'd get a little more intimate, a little get-to-know-your-podcast-tears. Joining me are uh, Derek McCaw. Hello. Lon Lopez. Is there a reason why we're whispering? I mean, we can talk normal, right? I mean, is that sure. um, Michael's just a little more seductive? He's drawing the oh, listeners. It's fan by sorry. After oh, okay. Hi. And uh, Rick Brechnetter. Hola. So uh, this is hopefully going to be a, uh, a once a month. Well, we'll we'll, we'll see. It's a it's a limited series now. We'll see where we go with it. And uh, like I said, our usual podcast is uh, kind of a, a mishmash of comments and crosstalk and. Uh, this time we are going to uh, explore a topic a little deeper. And this month's topic is uh, the comic that really got us hooked into comics, or the one that's sort of cemented in our mind as the, their, our starting point. It may not be the uh, the most the actual first comic that we read, but it's, it's the one that really made us fans, I think. And uh, I'm just going to go first. I'll, uh, if you've listened to the podcast, you'll know I'm a, a relative newcomer to comics. I started in 1990. Five, so young, maybe 1996, and still, uh, still, absolutely, still. Mm-hmm. and uh, have been reading fairly steadily ever since then. Uh, Derek McCaw got me hooked on the uh, the juice, as we say, and the way he did we it was say, uh, we do say we do say it. Okay. The way uh, he did it was Astro City number one, volume one, written by Kurt Busiek, 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 uh, illustrated by Brett Anderson, Brent mm-hmm. Anderson. And uh, covers by Alex Ross. Gentlemen, have you read the comic in question? I have indeed, obviously. As big I, fan. Big though fan. I have no recollection of being that being the first book I pushed upon you. I believe you recommended The Trade. And I, oh, I, I, think, I have okay. a very clear memory of taking The Trade with me on vacation and reading it there. And uh, prior to that, I think uh, I kind of had the, the outsider's view of comics, that it, it was kid stuff, that it's, uh, you know, Adam West, Batman, kind of Biff Pow, campy sort of thing. And uh, really the the way that this it's, – it's a single-shot story if you've never read it. And uh, it actually launches an Astro City line, which still runs in some form today. Yeah, sporadically from Homage Comics, which is Wildstorm. Mm-hmm. And uh, it introduces the character of the Samaritan, who is uh, – what Superman is to Metropolis, the Samaritan is to Astro City. He's a, an all-powerful, flying, super-strong protector of the city. And uh, the comic approaches it from a way that I'd never really seen, despite the fact that he lives a life of a superhero. He uh, goes to superhero meetings. He's in a you know, society. He has a secret identity. Um, really, what he likes to do is fly. 
but there's just no time in his life between, you know, getting cats out of trees and stopping volcanoes and saving people. There's actually no time for him to really enjoy the luxury of flying. And, uh, it really humanized heroes for me in a way that hadn't been done before. You think of them sort of as these icons or these uh, cutouts or cartoon characters in many mm-hmm. cases. And uh, while Busiek had done it before to some degree with Marvels, this right. was really his playground. And it had been done to a degree as well with you know Watchmen and things like that that tried to deconstruct the superhero and you know give them sort of a grim and gritty life. But this was and you knew none of those though either. At the time. Absolutely. So this was really an eye opener for me, and I I was absolutely blown away by you know the approach to comic that comics could take that the the type of story that medium could tell that I wasn't expecting. And this was after that initial conversation you would we'd had by email about. Was it Spider-Man, the clone saga you asked me to explain? Yeah, I asked you why Spider-Man briefly wore a, oh. a black costume and, uh, you know, tapped that great brain of yours. And uh, you explained it, and then I think we had some talks about uh, Hulk and stuff, and then I think you recommended this. And, well, uh, I both am grateful and curse the fact that you did, because uh, <laughs> I'm still wasting money today on the uh, on It's the a reverse hobby. intervention. Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. You so did I- him a favor. I did. You opened his mind, and I his did. world. True, absolutely true. And that's what comics has the power to do, does it not? Well, of course, I think so. That's why we're here at the table. I mean, we're all. Or is it just reading in general? Well, yeah. Uh, right. All right. Technically, I'm oh, okay. Supposed to uh, come down on the side of reading in general, but, mm-hmm. but this is good. I mean, we just recorded the uh, regular podcast, and one of the uh, letters was. You know, wanted some love advice from a spouse that didn't understand why the guy read comics, and I think that's really what people don't who don't read comics don't understand that it's not a medium for kids. It is a medium that encompasses many things: mm-hmm. adventure, western, pornographic. All things are open, just like television, comedy, tragedy, intense ER, pornographic, laughing, pornographic. Sure. Um, you know, but as Scott McCloud mentions in Understanding Comics, there are people that legitimately don't know how, to, literally don't know how to read Absolutely. comics. That the uh, the how pictures and words interconnect, and it's hard. Like if that that person at the end of our last podcast, if that person is talking to somebody who really just doesn't get it, yeah, you yeah. know, there's nothing you can do. It's just it's just a form of literature. You might as well say it's like reading in Hebrew or something. Uh, well, I'm sure I have tried. I had tried to read other comics at some point in right. my life, and they, the, either the story didn't grab me, or I do remember having some debate: which panel do I go to next? How you do read I read Young this Blood Number One, something like that? I'm sure I read a lot of crappy comics. About 15 before. words in that issue. Yeah. Hmm. But can it be argued though that comics has taken a more mature turn in the last 10 years or so? I mean, 10, 15 years. I mean. Maybe before when you tried to read them, they were kind of more kid-centric, you know, Batman beat the bank robber, you know, super robot and everything like, like that. I mean, ever since Watchmen, you know, and Dark Knight, I mean, hasn't there been more of a draw towards adult themes? It's hard to say. I think that's about the evolution of storytelling. You go back to World War II, one of the reasons superheroes were so popular and sold so well in World War II, Superman comics sold uh, it was a circulation of like $3 million, $4 million a month. And it was because we had our GIs overseas at, at war, and we were sending comics over there. So it was actually adults from the beginning that had sure, driven but back the, then, comics, uh, the comics boom. 
But we're okay, and this is going to sound maybe kind of harsh, but back then wasn't it more of an innocent time, and and there was a lot yes. more. So I would say storytelling so, has evolved in comics as our story absorption sense, or what we accept as believable. Because television has changed too. You watch it, an hour long drama from the '60s, and compare that to what goes on now, or a movie from the '60s, even you know that like a Perry Mason compared to like a Boston Legal or something, right? right? That, that that has changed quite a bit the way we absorb stories and mm. what we accept as believable is very different in 40 years in 10 years yeah. you know you watch things from the 90s sometimes and go wow that, but that, that's that part of maybe the charm of Astro City is Astro City is playing on the belief that you understand the established status quo of what superheroes means to the mm-hmm. the general public and it's flipping it on its on its head but right it, in in a way, actually, it is also timeless comics mm-hmm. because I mean it's like the yeah. the Bruce Tim Batman. I mean, it, it all the cars look fifties, but he clearly has modern technology. It, it's fitting that it's now published by Homage Comics because it is, it is in many ways an homage to an older time of comics that may or may not have. And it always existed. was published by Homage. I thought it was published by Image originally. Uh, Image what? It's confusing. Image was uh, the publisher of Wildstorm. And Wildstorm, which is run by Jim Lee, started the homage imprint for Astro City. There were a couple other books that came out under homage, and now it's just Astro City. Wildstorm was, because Jim Lee technically owned it, Image is a loose collection of those publishers mm. together, or, or those those figures, those company heads, and uh, DC bought Wildstorm out. So it's always been homage, but it has been owned by different companies. Gotcha. For me, Astro City was more like... If we had a real city and you really had superheroes in them and they really interacted, it wasn't just like, oh, I've never met you, let's fight, kind of Marvel kind of <laughs> yeah. thing. It really felt more like a city. It felt like more like real motivations and real character interactions. And the, yeah. and well, really and I would crazy. say, I mean, it's definitely one of the, the most heartbreaking. You read the half issue. Was that included in that trade? It is not, but I have since read it. The, the one where there's the guy that is uh, constantly bothered in dreams of a, a woman that he was in love with, but nobody knows who she is. He has no conscious memory of her, but in her dream, in his dreams, he's constantly remembering her, and that was the love of his life. And it turns out that it was uh, he was caught in a cosmic crossover. And when reality reformed itself, she didn't. Uh-huh. And so he remembered the Earth that was before, and the Hanged Man, who's just the creepiest of the supernatural characters. But an awesome character, though. Yeah, he's just this. Hanged man, and his job was going around. He was in between fighting actual menaces, was going around trying to fix these little holes in continuity where people remembered people that no longer existed because in 1940 they had gone back in time and accidentally caused her parents never to meet. And it was just like such a great turning of we are always so used to seeing these things from the superhero's perspective. We don't think about those consequences. And at least the earliest issues of Astro City, he's changed it a little bit. It makes up the early issues of Astro City were all about what it was like to actually be just a normal person. Yeah, that's actually it, this, the mission statement. I mean, he introduces the, uh, the the first trade. And if you've never read it, you know, I think all of us here this would recommend it. Life in the Big City is the first volume. And um, I think it, it's unique even today in comics that the title doesn't follow one character or one group right. it ju- it follows the city yeah. so sometimes you get the perspective of being a bystander 
in a city where superheroes routinely fight. And he mentioned, uh, the author mentioned, you know, what's it like in their city? What's it like? What's on TV? What's on the radio? What's it like to be a hostage in a bank? You know, it, it jumps around in perspective. Sometimes it follows the Samaritan. Sometimes it follows the team he's for. Sometimes it follows the villain perspective, you know. And they're, they're all good. But that, still in comics today, we're so used now to them humanizing our heroes. Mm-hmm. But that remains unique with Astro City is that the perspective changes and you never know it's going to be modern Astro City. Is it going to be in the 40s? Is it going to be following this character or mm-hmm. a bystander or... And that's why I still collect and buy. And it's a richly thought-out history as well, because there are references. I think even in the first issue about that character, they said the poor, doomed silver agent. Yeah. And it took him ten years to even begin to tell the story of what actually happened to him. But you'd constantly see references to that. It was so, so rich. And and it's all encapsulated just in that title. You don't have to go out and collect right a thousand crossovers or somebody else has the rights to this issue so you never really find out or- mm-hmm. but part of the good thing about or i mean and you guys are just you know if i could reiterate is that it's more a focus on storytelling and not character you know mm-hmm. or characters i should say there because there's definitely development of character sure. but you know it's like you said it doesn't follow necessarily a certain group but it's more about telling awesome stories and that's yeah. why i think it's different yeah and it stands above the rest so yeah. So what would that lead you into, Michael? Would you go from there? It was a game of comics. Hard drugs. Uh, the only other comic I, I had a clear recollection of buying was uh, Nightwing number one because I've always had a fascination with Batman. And uh, Derek said, "Oh, you know, uh, Robin's now Nightwing, and there's a new comic." And so whenever I would try to gauge where I jumped on in comics, I know I, I remember buying Nightwing number one, and now they're up to you know 130 or whatever. So I, I no longer collect it, but. Uh, so yeah, I mean it's led to everything. Fifty-two crisis, uh, a lot of Marvel, a lot of trades, several Comic Cons, uh, Brian Michael thousands, Bendis, thousands of wasted dollars, uh, <laughs> drooling on Michael Bendis. We Michael Bendis. Michael Brian Michael Bendis. Yeah, I was briefly married to Brian Michael Bendis. <laughs> it happens. Did he know? No, no. But it's one of my favorite moments at a convention ever when you met him. You want to tell the story? Uh, let's see how dorky it is. Yeah, let's hear it. First convention. It's the been. first convention we walk up. And, and to be what fair. What convention was it? Uh, it was Comic-Con. It was Comic-Con, and I think it was 2001. Yeah. And right. in 2001 or two, I can't remember if it was 2001 or 2002, but we went. Just Michael and myself. This a, we just started Fanboy Planet. Mm-hmm. I'd gone the previous year, so I got to sound like the expert, because I'd gone the previous year for Daily Radar. And uh, so we're walking around, and we go right to the Powers booth. And Powers Booth was there? No. You know, we oh, were doing so sorry. well. It seemed so relaxed. This was, like, really fun. Sorry, you you're just a hero it. of mine. I'm Thanks. sorry. Need Thanks, Lon. You've ruined Christmas again. again. You sound like my mother. <laughs> She's got this deep a voice? Okay. Well, hold on. To set it up, obviously, I, like you said, I'd never been to a convention, and I'd never been to any type of convention where no, you can absolutely. meet I am... the people you are a fan of. So I really didn't know the format. So we go up to the Powers booth and i get i i see brian michael bennis nope. who i i had read wait you're actually standing wait two feet away from him and you say you know who i'd really like to meet i'm not even gonna i'm not even gonna make fun of you fun of your voice here i'd really like to meet brian michael bendis and i said you're standing right in front of brian michael bendis <laughs> because i didn't recognize him because at the time his picture in wizard looked nothing like him because right, he appeared to be six feet tall and he had a full head full of red hair. Full golden head of hair. 
Uh, but yeah, so I, I uh, okay, so I go up and he, he he's like signed some issue of Spider Man or Ultimate Spider Man. I don't even remember. I got to collect it somewhere. But uh, he signed it, so I'm like looking at oh, like hey, I got his signature. I'm looking down at the comic as Brian Michael Bendis is reaching out his hand to shake my hand. <laughs> I believe you also asked how much you owed him, which yeah. in 2001 was a silly question. Now I think probably now I would owe him. Would, gosh, but, would owe but back then he was an unknown. He, had, <laughs> he hadn't started writing Ultimate Spider-Man, had he? You just said you, he signed your copy of Ultimate Spider-Man. I think it was a Powers issue. I think it was because Powers, powers is really I think what I, I you discovered. Started reading powers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was before Ultimate, the Ultimate Universe started, but uh, it was just really funny. And then when we said we were from Fanboy Planet, he goes, "Fanboy Planet." I love you guys. Yeah, well, he was confusing of somebody else, I'm sure. No, 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 because I'd already received an email from him. Oh. And it's because Mar- um, he was writing Daredevil, and Marvel had forwarded him the review I had written of a Daredevil issue. And so he emailed yeah. and said, you know, if you come down to Comic-Con and you had gotten really excited, he said, and Brian Michael Bendis said we could. Oh, all right, all right, all right. right, right. Let's, Let's move right along. Uh, back okay. to our regular schedule. But it was topic. a good story because now Michael, you know, goes to Comic Con and he goes He's for so an hour. He's so bitter and jaded. He it's looks like, oh. around for an hour and he goes back and he uh, he plays video games in the hotel room all afternoon. Bend us again. <laughs> Can I just say though, before that though, to to never be to go to a convention and have Comic Con be the first one you go to. That's like must blow your mind, right? It's like being yeah. raised in a box, and then <laughs> <laughs> the first television show you watch is HR Puffin stuff or something. <laughs> well, it's not like they have you know a TV convention where you can go and shake hands with David Hasselhoff, or that's uh, Comic Con actually. <laughs> it is now. I love you, Aaron Gray. Mm. Yeah, All right, where, where so, are we going? Yeah. So I'm up next. Rick, you got the book open. Let's hear it. Well, I'm going to go to the other end of time. Ooh. <laughs> the first comic Devil ever. Dinosaur and Moon Boy? <laughs> Close. <laughs> Closer than you think. No, uh, because I am older than Michael, and I actually started younger than Michael, I believe, too. So my first comic Everyone I did, would not, have to. did not get new. Uh, I know I got this used from somebody else. But it was uh, about the time I was really interested in Fantastic Four. This is late late sixties, because the uh, the cartoon show, the original cartoon show, was on on Saturday morning, and they were doing a great job of telling those. That's early, that, that Hanna Barbera yeah, series, right? They they stayed really close to the storylines in the books. They were really good story Kirby Lee stories. Wait, could it, is this the one with the fan with the before Herbie, right? When they had right, the Fantastic right, Four, they actually had I the mean, with torch the in Human it. Torch, right? Right. right. So they, uh, the first one I ever saw was with uh, with Diablo, oh. um, mm-hmm. the, the alchemist, and just really enthralled with that. But mostly, really enthralled with this was my introduction to the Fantastic Four. So back, I mean, this was a strange group of people. I mean, I'd had Superman comics before and Jimmy Olsen and even some Wonder Woman stuff, but this is like a guy who's on fire, a guy made out of rocks, a girl who can make herself invisible and a guy who stretches you know it's like single vector uh superpowers sure in the four of them and pretty much blown away by the cartoon series on saturday morning so when i had an opportunity to actually pick up a book from a friend um it was fantastic 451 this man this monster classic classic a classic story classic i'm told and (laughs) yeah (laughs) and in the story Ben Grimm, the thing, becomes human again. 
which was one of those things. It happened a couple times in the series temporarily, but at this point you're kind of going, in the innocence you're reading, is he ever going to become the thing again? Um, the storyline is uh, really well written. It's you know the Ben walks out of the Fantastic Four tower, kind of dejected, makes a friend who drugs him and steals his powers, and the guy goes back to take over his life, looking the Fantastic like the thing, Four, yeah. to destroy the Fantastic Four. We're never really sure why. Um, we but, know he's a mad scientist. No, oh, it's one of the it's one of the powerful things about the story is you know he's really, never named. He actually appears later. Later on, I found out he appears in a panel of the previous issue, talking about the fact that he's going to be going after the Fantastic yeah. Four. The series, the fifty-one follows the whole Galactus Silver Surfer uh, oh. series. So that was that one spans the several Galactus issues. trilogy, yeah. And then this is all encapsulated in one book. So again, a good introductory story because yeah. it finishes up in one book. When you're a kid and you're picking up books like one at a time and not getting a whole series, if you get uh, that's one of the problems with comics today, I think, is that you pick up like an issue of Spider-Man. If you just grab it off the shelf, you're probably picking up the second of five. Yeah. And so you're going to get like 20% of a story. And then if you don't... And even if they give the recap, it's not, it's not the same. same. And it's, it's not, not going to end. It's going to end on a cliffhanger. And so that's not, not really a satisfying, gripping uh, thing. So if you're listening to Marvel and DC... More stories that finish in one ep- one issue, and maybe mark them on the cover so kids can say, "Hey, it's a whole story. This is valuable." Well, CrossGen tried that with their key issue. There was a little key, but who knew that? Yeah, the one marked with a key was the one I needed to pick up. Yeah, yeah. and what and what parent going into a right. store is going to know yeah. anyway? So the other th- great things about this issue, I mean, it's Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. It just doesn't get it any better. Them than I've that. heard of, and. Aside from the great things that happen in the story, Ben Grimm turning human, the Fantastic Four not believing the human Ben Grimm is actually the human Ben Grimm, but you've got like these full page panels that Kirby's drawn with these fantastic, crazy machines, and something that he he uh, went on with in many more of his uh, of his stories, and I think it's actually this may be the first time he used it. There's a full page panel of. Mr. Fantastic in the negative zone. And Kirby would take these photo montages that he put together in color uh, where there's where there are um, optical art and cave pieces and all jumbled together to make these otherworldly, strange mm-hmm. scenery. for, And then draws the character in on top of it. He did the same. He did a lot of this in S.H.I.E.L.D., he carried it over into New Gods as and well. And so, yeah, let's say that. I mean, this guy was drawing three or four or five books a month, staying on schedule. Nothing was ever late. And innovating. And innovating and totally changing the language of comics. And yeah. most of his designs are what they're still basing on. Oh, absolutely. On absolutely. Yeah, this is actually the first. This is sacrilegious again. But this is the first full issue of Kirby Art I've ever perused. Really? And uh, I was quite impressed, especially the big uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, Send hate mail to... <laughs> I spoiled the end for you when we were talking about it beforehand. I'm not going to spoil the end for anybody. Wait, but wait, wait, wait. Does this book... You've got the omnibus here. This is the yeah, I was does say, it have the letters pages as well? It does. Wow. i got to have this book. <laughs> oh, this is... Uh, this is from Omnibus... Uh, Marvel Omnibus, The Fantastic Four, Volume 2. Ooh. 
which is uh, available on Amazon. I got it. Available on Amazon. It's about sixty bucks on Amazon. Who doesn't love sixties letter pages? And it's uh, it contains. But the letters pages are full of people that actually went on to become professionals. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So it's really fascinating to read that and pick. So it's issues thirty-one through sixty, and also includes Fantastic Four Annual number two. And not brand ick number one. Uh-huh. Ah, not brand so, ick. So about 800, uh, I think it's over 800 pages of Fantastic Four story and the letter pages and some. Uh, some that went over, by the way, uh, Michael's Ed's will say not brand ick was Marvel's parody magazine, which they, they parodied themselves. And not brand ick was because they said brand ick was DC. Ah, gotcha. So, so kind of like a what the kind of did yeah, in the last few yeah. exactly. years. Exactly. So this this actually uh, led into I, again. I was fascinated with the thing, and this led into the real comics that I started buying new off the rack, which was started with Fantastic Four seventy eight. Another thing story which grabbed me. I remember. I remember I was at the thrifty drugstore on Meridian, uh, not on Meridian, on uh, Monterey Road, uh, spinning the rack, and the thing no more, uh, which is a story where Reed finally comes up with a cure for the thing's condition but the the kicker is he can he can turn him back but if he does that he probably won't be able to make him human ever again so the thing no more uh issue 78 was followed by uh what was it called it was uh, uh this monster forever i think it was called uh where Ben makes the ultimate sacrifice and becomes the thing again. It's a plot line they very hurriedly borrowed for the first film. Yeah, yeah. Made it compressed in like they, two uh, minutes. The, the, the first story is a wizard story. It's the wizard from the Frightful Four, and Ben actually takes him out without his powers. And, uh, but he's got the wizard's gloves at the, in the beginning of the next issue, and the android, another, and it's another one of those characters, only appeared in this one issue of uh, Fantastic Four. And the android was created by the Mad Thinker as a fail-safe device in case the wizard ever went up against him. And The android is a character in She-Hulk. Uh, no, that's the Mad Thinker's android. This was huh. uh, the android. It was Android Man. Oh, Android Man. Right. Who uh, who actually gets disassembled at the end of the at the end of the All story. Right. But he's he I have been out Zorlax, sir. He <laughs> focuses in on the things thing is carrying the wizard's gloves. And so he atta- he gets attacked and he, he uses the gloves to charge himself and become mm-hmm. the So I'm where gonna, where did this lead you, Rick? This at that point, this then was the counter to my argument about do only one issue stories because because this one carried over into the next issue. I started buying the Fantastic Four mm-hmm. at this point, and that led to harder stuff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, the, the, the Marvel Marvel's great about crossing over their characters, so it wasn't too hard to jump from the Fantastic Four to the Avengers. Sure. I jumped on the Fanta- onto the Avengers right before the Skull Cree War. Which again was a nice long meaty story with yeah, Neil yeah. Adams artwork and yeah, Rick Jones had a purpose. Yeah, Rick Jones finally had a destiny, and it's led you to the uh, Rick Cave, which we now sit in now, filled with comics and toys. Spent uh, way too much on comics. Yeah, yeah, but, but it's a are, life well lived, isn't it? I know we are somehow envious of no, it. Uh, no, no regrets. Good. So, Derek, 
Take us down memory lane. Oh. All right. Uh, mine is, again, not definitely not the first book I bought, but uh, this is Justice League of America, number 110. And I remember this. Okay, so I f- actually first saw it on the comics rack at the Ronda Rexall Drug Store uh, in a shopping center that is no longer that. It used to be the Ronda Valley Shopping Center. Now it's Lomans Plaza. And uh, it was on the rack, and it is uh, one of those 100-page specials, 50 cents. And, big uh, bucks. Oh, big bucks, big bucks. Especially in the 30s. Uh, no, this was the 70s, actually. So I've been buying comics for a while. I know you were trying. I know, I know. Uh, and it says, uh, and now I've, I've looked up the cover on, on, on the net, and it says, here comes TV Super Friends. So it's probably brought into comics like kind of circuitously. I know I'd always bought comics. It was like I never bought two of the same thing. It was kind of like, well, I want to know what that character's like. Mm. I had as many Bugs Bunny as I had any DC or you know Walt Disney comics and stories, any of that. My mom was felt a lot more relieved when I'd buy the Walt Disney stuff than the superhero stuff. Gee, any surprise? <laughs> and you know, but actually, so it was like the the Mego action figures came out, so I got the Aquaman doll and uh, and Super Friends started, so I like that, and then they tied that into Justice League, and I saw this thing, and the cover is the Justice League is all around in black, and then there's the stories that are within the book are on the cover, and the the big one was the year's most startling story. The Murder of Santa Claus, 1973. <laughs> Who killed Santa Claus? Wow. And we were, like, my dad had stopped. We were getting something, and he said, we don't have time to get a comic book. So it was the first one I remember really, like, I, I had to have that comic book. Must and I couldn't get it. Who killed Santa? Yeah. My babysitter, Santa. my babysitter, uh, Caroline Young, as a Christmas present, gave me a stack of comics. And this was on the top of the stack. And oh, I was wow. like... It's the one I wanted. So you were lusting after this for how long? Like three weeks. But for when you're seven, that's like eternity. And so did she know that you wanted it? No, it was just she had seen these were the best deals. Like I had, you know, Doctor Fate placed it in your hands. Indeed, it's a Christmas miracle. Indeed, and that was the story. Uh, that it was uh, the Santa Claus was a was a guy. Superman and Batman were going to take this guy, Dime Store Santa, to. An orphanage to give away presents, and he had a, one of the gifts in his bag exploded and killed him. And it turned out that it was the, a plot by the key. And so they all had to go to this inner city tenement building. Uh, and so the call goes out. The group goes out to all the all the Justice Leaguers. You know, Aquaman's busy in Atlantis, so he can't join. I mean, it was like seeing this whole world all mm. of a sudden that I really didn't know. I mean, you sort of knew in Super Friends that there were. Four guys or five, if you count Robin, who hung around each other, but that you could go out and like this call goes out to Green Lantern. How Jordan's, uh, how Jordan is in the shower, he slips on soap, <laughs> hits his head on the shower, and the ring leaves him, puts him in a green healing aura, and and leaves and goes to find John Stewart. So it actually like a month later got like this three pack and got that first appearance of John Stewart in the Green Lantern Green Arrow with the you know you whooped the Green Lantern now so you you know try the Black Lantern and uh, so I was like wow this is amazing you know so it was John Stewart's I think second appearance in comics ever now he's really popular but in the seventies it was like this you know weird, he's edgy he was really edgy uh, Green Arrow was there and they you know they and the fact that they divided up but here's the thing and Michael's gonna laugh because. So it's also the Red Tornado's involved. It's the issue in which Red Tornado gets his costume with the the arrow on the oh, head okay. because Black Canary said, your old duds were just really tired. So at the end, after they've survived this adventure, 
where the key is created all these deadly toys and room after room and ki- and they all seemingly die, including a room in which a red sun comes down and saps all. So, I, like, I learned so much about Superman's powers in one in one issue. It was all like seventeen pages, uh, and the way they're all saved is a total Deus Ex Machina. They go, "How did we all? They all they don't know how they all survived their death traps." And they go, "But of course." In the next, you know, the keys every other page going, "I shall get my revenge." Ha ha ha! And then. This panel opens, a door opens, and the Phantom Stranger pulls the key out unconscious, and they go, of course, the one man who could be in the right place at the right time, the Phantom Stranger. He saved them. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, who's that guy? Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> I was like, this is so cool. Totally overloaded me sensorily. And was it, did he have the flat-brimmed hat at that yeah, point? Yeah, oh yeah, it was okay, a flat-brimmed so hat and everything. Totally and then he's gone, and the next panel, before they could offer him his his membership in the league, so he's always just the honorary so member. So you and Brad Meltzer got hooked on the same comic. We did, yeah. uh, which I realized that when Brad Meltzer actually talked about it once, I was like, holy crap, he is talking about my, yes, Brad Meltzer and I got hooked at the same time. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so get ready, as they said, ready, Tornado gets his new costume with the arrow because his old does were but then that's not enough. It's a hundred page spectacular. Then you've got the Justice Society of America. And I suddenly understand what Earth 2 is. And it's like this great, you know, uh, this is the, against street gangs. So you learn it's like they're like the little rat or like the, the dead end kids, basically. And, uh, then there's the Zatanna, that the final thing of that, which they reprinted in a trade paperback, how, Zatan- how Zatara was missing. And it was, so it was actually the last chapter where, Zatanna gathered the energy duplicates of all the Justice League to help her find her father. And it's reprinted as like the Zatanna saga. And it was like, I had that last chapter. And then in the middle, there was a fold out of all the members of the Justice Society that had ever been. And so it was like, it got me totally hooked on this idea. And then there's a letters page. And the letters page that actually references like oh, the story where the freedom fighters were found in Earth X. And it had only been like two issues or three issues before that. And so I was like, what? Who were these guys? What's Earth X? And you know, there's a Superman on Earth too. What? And you know, the Zorlak is born. The Zorlak is born. Totally. And I said, my, you know, I started like, questing. And I realized as Michael put out this challenge, like the other book I remember was Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. Same thing. A hundred page super spectacular, like I bought two or three months later, that opened up the thirtieth century in the DC universe, and suddenly it was like. Holy crap. I mean, this is just like you just had uh, injected me with a case of Pokemon cards. I guess it would be the, <laughs> the modern-day equivalent. Because, I mean, you know, people it, that's what it is. It suddenly realizes it's all this interconnectedness and all these characters you had to know. And yeah, that would be the first comic book, Justice League of America and Superboy and Legion of Superheroes were the first two, I'd say, that I really would consciously seek out. And if I could find them at garage sales or flea markets, I'd get back issues and... You know, then I started getting into other characters, but those were the two titles that I absolutely, absolutely had to have. And I liked the Avengers later, you know, kind of picked those up, but I kind of went back to that randomness thing because when I was in elementary school, I really depended on the kindness of my parents or my grandparents. Oh, sure. And it was like one funny book, as they'd say, was much like the other. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, I'd get this random issue of Thor. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, big so, deal. I, I know you're a lifelong DC fan. Do you think this is, I mean, it, this is obviously the reason? I would think because so. Because you got 100 pages to pour over. Rick, are you a lifelong Marvel fan because of this? Yeah, I always have been. I mean, my first comics were always DC, though. I mean, it was my parents would buy Superman. I, I remember getting Jimmy Olsen Superman's pal more than anything else. Nice. 
Uh, and I love watching the Spider-Man TV, the cartoon, that one from the 60s. So I remember that. And I always had a couple issues of Spider-Man lying around. I mean, and I did try everything. And that's a, that's the Zorlachisness is that I had to buy. I, I was telling Rick Poor earlier dear. at dinner, it really started with big little books because I had this one when I was four, Popeye Ghost Ship to Treasure Island. And I was t- it was su- such a long story. I was tired of my parents having to read me a chapter each night. So just teach me to read so I can read this myself. So I did. But in the Big Little Book series in the 60s, they had, uh, well, there was a man from Uncle, so that was a weird thing. I was really in the man from Uncle mm-hmm. and when no one else knew what the heck that was. Uh, but there was a Batman Big Little Book. There was an Aquaman Big Little Book, Space Ghost. I'd never seen Space Ghost. I don't think I saw an episode of Space Ghost until I was an adult. Uh-huh. But I knew who he was. Um and there was a Tarzan, there was a Lone Ranger. I mean, so there are lots. Right? There were lots of different su- we consider superheroes, yeah. you know. And so, um, you know, that kind of sparked it. But it was to me, those two things are really tied together. You know, I had Teen Titans. I'd had one issue of Shazam when they revived that, and I thought that was really cool. But it was Justice League that really just launched it because you get so much. And I think kids, even even if you could find a book that's appropriate for kids, they miss out on. Marvel started kind of doing that, reprinting key stories that have to do with with, with milestone issues. Well, I think when you're a kid too, I mean, especially when you have limited funds and you shop in the rack, if you can find a bargain, you know, yeah. and it was it really if it was like twenty five cents for a hundred pages versus twelve cents for what was it like probably twenty five pages mm-hmm, back then. Mm-hmm. So that was you go, oh, this is a lot more of my time, a lot more entertainment value here. And they tend to do... Well, that's why kids like little toys. They do the reprints. Because you can pick up, carry a bunch in your pocket. Yeah, well, they do reprints of older stories and maybe related to the main topic, and so they were more, they were better jumping on points. Well, that's the great thing about Free Comic Book Day, which we now have, Mm -hmm. and the 10-cent issues and 8-cent issues that were the rave a couple years ago. Yeah. But isn't it interesting that you guys both got hooked on comics through... Uh, the cartoon show, and I got hooked on comics through word of mouth. Nothing the comic book industry did right. sold us. Yeah. So that when they do those, here's a new jumping on point, here we're relaunching. That's all for people who are already fans. How many people actually walk into the comic book store and say, give me something, shopkeep? Well, how many comic book stores were around back then? Oh, it was well, all uh, drugstores, weren't they? When I, when I was growing up, yeah, in downtown in San Jose, there were... Three within a half block of each other. Hmm. There was Marvel Galaxy, there was Bob Sidebottoms, and then there was the Comic Collector. Hmm. And so you could walk from one to the other to the other. I went to Marvel Galaxy uh, the day we adopted my younger brother, and that was my parents' consolation prize to me. They got a baby, and I got to go to a comic book store for the very first time. Did you see the huge James Bond movie poster up on the wall? Yes, and there was an alien in the display yep. case in the center. From uh, War of the Worlds. Did you two date and we not know? <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't get a comic book that day. Instead, the woman behind the counter started talking to my parents about Star Trek. Uh-huh. And she showed them tr- the trouble with Tribbles, like the the book that David Gerald had written. And so, and somehow we walked out without buying a thing. But they were then t- sold by this woman that I could start watching Star Trek at six o'clock on Channel Two, <laughs> which I did. And then, like the second episode I ever watched was Trouble with Tribbles, and it was so exciting that hey, she was just talking about that. Thank so- you, Phantom Stranger. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Whoever that was. Utterly ruined my life. <laughs> I could have played football. I could have. 
Could have been a contender. Uh, could have been a contender of a bum, which is what I am today. Lon? <laughs> yeah. Um, are you, were you done? No, I'm done. Oh, okay. Um, well, I'm not enough. He I have. Enough. I got a long story, so everybody just settle in. But right. um, I like the visuals. All right. Here's here's the, how I got hooked, and I blame my mother, which is entirely okay. We all do. Uh, as a youngster, of course, back uh, okay, 1973, I was born or whatever. Around that time, whatever. Around that Decanted. time. What I guess the, the Adam West thing was still hot. Adam West is Batman. Was still the thing. So I remember as a child getting like Batman, you know, cowls to put on and run around the house. So I always had a love for superheroes from, I'm guessing it started with the Batman kind of TV, TV show. show. Um, but then after that, there was always constantly, you know, I was always a rambunctious, creative kid. So she was always kind I was all into art and drawing and everything. So she was always throwing, you know, comic books in front of me. So I'd always have. You know, some kind of comic here or there, and I would just, you know, they were just off the rack, and, you know, mm-hmm. you know, whenever you're at a store, oh, mom, get me that, and, you know, wouldn't remember, whatever. Um, my first real one that I remember consciously wanting and getting, I actually tried to con my grandmother into to buying. Uh, I remember walking into, I think it was a Walgreens or something in Santa Clara, and I saw it on the rack, and it was this one. This was, like, from 1980. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was Avengers 190. Looks like it was retailing here for 40 cents, and uh, the people at home can't see the cover. But essentially, you know, when you're when you're trying to sell a comic book, I mean, that's pretty much everything you want as a kid. That cover. Essentially, there's a giant monster in the middle of the book, slamming around Captain America, Iron Man. The vision, everybody. There's just it's very reminiscent of Fantastic Four number one. Possibly, yeah. Daredevil. But I mean, it's it's a, oh yeah, and that was it had a guest appearance from Daredevil, who you know I'm a huge fan of. So I basically said to my grandmother, and Lon has a tattoo by the way of Daredevil. Of just Daredevil, so people don't know that he's a, that big a fan. Yes, and so um, inked him. So basically, I I go to con my grandma, and I go, oh look, it's my favorite book. I love that one. It's awesome. And my grandmother, you know, trying to, God bless her, trying to, you know, make me happy and, you know, oh, that's your favorite book? Okay. Watch you an issue of Daffy Duck? No, she gave me a copy of Avengers. And <laughs> I remember taking that thing home. I don't have the actual book here. I just have the cover. But um, Do you own the actual book? I think so at home. I have to check. I believe it was George Perez doing art. George yeah, Pre- or John doing... Byrne. Or... No, it's George Perez. It's Blue yeah. Beast. Uh, yeah, the classic Blue Beast or whatever. It's um, Marvel. Yeah, so my favorite Avengers line. So, I, and I think you open the first page, and I think it's Henry Peter Gyrich going, you know, one of you Avengers has to leave or something like that. So it was this yeah, big. He's like, always about the roster. Yeah, it was this big things. splash page. So they were all kind of like, you know, it was just, it was a really great story. And I don't remember a lot, of it, but basically they end up fighting the Grey Gargoyle, and it was just to me that's classic comic book. It's a team book, action, excitement, fighting. You know, it had Daredevil. You know, it was one of the first times I saw the radar sense. You know, he, he was sensing something, so they had the bullseye, you know, whatever around him, the radar sense. Mm-hmm. Well, that's something Marvel did early mm-hmm. was introduce characters from other books into the books. I right, mean, right. Everything from Spider-Man and Fantastic Four to, you know, Daredevil and Fantastic Four. To, you know, they, they all made their ways through the books. Yeah, no, so, so this book was probably the thing that got me most excited. But like I said, I'd had previous books beforehand. Um, what also helped my my habit was I had a cousin, and I'm sure this has all happened to us at one point or another. We had a family member who just gave us a box of comics, and here, you know, like you said, you had your 
your babysitter go, oh, here's a stack of comics. Well, I had a cousin who, mm-hmm. you know, was getting into his teens or was growing up and just was like, yeah, I'm not into this stuff anymore. So he threw me a box of, like, 70s comics. So I was, you know, I don't know, 10 years old, and I had copies of Man-Thing and Doctor Strange and Power Man and Iron Fist, which grew to become one of my favorites. And so it was that kind of introduction, too. And actually, he, he in that box, he had a copy of Hulk 181, which is the first appearance of Wolverine. Yeah. So, you know, so... You know, my Did you cousin. Light that on fire? No, but it's in it's in pretty bad condition. But he so it up and smoked it in college. But uh, it's one of the, one of the <laughs> gems in my collection. Um, if I didn't sell it already. Um, but basically, uh, then after that, the other exposure I had to comics was not the actual comics themselves, but was collections of comics, and that's why I brought this other one here. Is as a kid, I think we picked this up at the flea market. Maybe I don't even think we bought it at a store. But it was this collection of comics, and I'm sure if I had the book, it'd tell you what issues. But there's a Justice League of America, like, paperback, paperback novel where it was, you know, a couple issues collected in black and white. Yeah. Um, the cover alone has, you know, a picture of Superman with a big lightning bolt in the back, and then they're surrounded by all the Justice Leaguers. So, of course, as a kid, you look at that and go, wow. What I love is just at the bottom, the matter-of-fact roll call, and it shows you all the heroes that are going to be in it. Justice League roll call. Classic element of the book. And I think it centered around a lot of the satellite characters, which, you know, if if you've been following the Justice League ever, the satellite era was, you know, a classic. and, uh, and... Red Tornado. Yeah, and so that really, I remember reading that. The Sandman's on that cover? Yeah, yeah. he's not listed in the roll call, but he's there at the table. Yeah, the classic. So Dr. Fate. Yeah. So so basically reading, basically I would take that to school and I would read it, you know, and it was one of my favorite things. I would always read the Wonder Woman and Batman, they're making a date on that cover. Is that what it is? (laughs) Well, it's long, it's established. That's kind of a thing that was going on in the 70s that Bob Kaniger would, would write that in Brave and the Bold that, Sort of just imply that nobody would say that, that Bruce Wayne and Diana Prince would go off and get busy. That's hot. Relieve a little tension. But then the other thing I wanted to bring up to you guys too was not only the paperback, but we okay. My, I had a lot of those too. I mean, yeah, right. Yeah. But one of the other my other big exposures to comics were through Toys R Us. I don't know if you guys ever, if you guys remember when Toys R Us used to sell packages. Of like comics, like oh, yeah. three in a piece. Well, or whatever. as I said, I got that Green Lantern, Green Arrow with. Uh, it was at TG and Y. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, at a three pack there, just, just like uh, again, Grandma took me over to TG and Y, and I said, oh, "Okay, I'll buy that for right. like a buck." I actually, I, I got a lot of those for Carlton Comics. They would mix like old Blue Bill- Blue Beetle and uh, God, was it Doc Solar and was that? Who's oh, Gold Key? Who's Gold Key? Maybe they're all mixed in. Yeah, it was. Oh, but, it was. Yeah. Not Marvel and DC, but all the the second uh, tier comic producers. But yeah. then, and then one of the other, like the final things that really got me really into the lore. You said how you read that Justice League book, <clears throat> excuse me, and it had all like the history and everything. One of the things that Toys R Us did was they printed these. They weren't actually trade paperbacks, but they were like colored, uh, like collections of like what you were saying earlier, like some of the more pivotal stories in like a character's history. Like for example, I got one that was like a it was like a tablet-sized, you know, magazine-style, like hard-printed, like you know, book, and it re and it was basically like they had a Captain America one, they had a Fantastic Four one, and the Captain America one just you know basically covered key points in his history, his origin story, and then you know it had some other cool. And I think John Byrne did a lot of the stories that were in there too, and it was just a collection thing where it was like 
I fell in love with Captain America then, you know, and then the the Fantastic Four one had the origin story, and then I think it had some of the old Kirby ones in there. Some of the old, was it, did Sal Bashima? No, he did Hulk, right? No, Sal Bashima did it after Kirby left. Yeah. Okay, but I mean, so so it was, in a weird way, it was my introduction to comics towards where I saw the comic through the ages through different artists, you know what I mean? The Captain America mm-hmm. origin story was done in, like, what, the 30s or the 50s? or I, don't, I mean... Well, originally 1941. Actually, I think it was the John Byrne retelling okay. of okay. the origin story. That was not done in 1941. No, I know. That was like in the 80s or whatever. But, um, but yeah, so just those collect- – so basically back then it was, you know, through the toy stores where they were pushing mm-hmm. comics that way. And so I just, you know, so that's how I got hooked. But the Avengers 190 is probably the one I remember most fondly as being the book that just made me fall in love with superheroes and superhero mm-hmm. books. Yeah. And, you know, and then the Justice League, you can't, you know – you can't go wrong with a Justice League. You well, know these what I mean? cheap paperbacks were were great for introducing. Uh, I mean, you, you get like I don't know what, six issues worth of yeah. cherry, cherry pick stories, and they were you know they're cheap for the time, and they're kind of kind of the precursor of what yeah. they've done now with the uh, with the soft cover um, essentials, Marvel essentials, oh, yeah, yeah. and the DC oh, yeah, uh, yeah. spotlight book. I mean, those are larger in size, but the, yeah, those were like, those were like ninety-five cents. They fit, fit on your paperback rack. Yeah, this is this one actually was. I mean, that's how I discovered a lot of Mad too. Yeah, yeah. You know, because you buy those old Mad paperbacks, and uh, I mean, that was another thing that got me into that. I, I've been thinking about that today, just how like subversive Mad was in the hands of. Maybe that's a topic for a later yeah, a podcast because I can't imagine like giving my child what I read. <laughs> like, but when you without some it, really you... awkward questions and cynicism in an eight-year-old that, well, no wonder I'm screwed up. I read Mad. <laughs> <laughs> but back then, did you understand Mad, or you just um? Back then, did you really understand Mad? That was for an edit. <laughs> Say it again. <laughs> so back then, did you really understand Mad? Um, you know that's a good question. Because I remember when I read Mad, I was just like. Uh, it's funny, it's drawn, but I never understood like the what was the one the always reoccurring one like uh what was it it was like life is or um the lighter Dave, side lighter of, side of that's yeah. what it was. Thing. Stuff. I I think because we had the time to reread those things over and over and Mad would definitely be something I'd go back and reread and again would pick up it Lee Market stuff, I would pick up new things every time I read it. I'd get a little older. I'd understand a little something more about human nature or yeah, whatever. Yeah, Dave Berg was always about the man-woman relationship, dating and marriage, and stuff that, you, I mean, as a kid, you kind of, oh, he's talking about sex. Mm-hmm. you know. And then, and then when they do parodies of movies, so like the parody of Mrs. Robinson or, or yeah, The Graduate, the graduate and yeah. they'd, there'd be dialogue in there, that was actually I, more interesting than if you had actually seen the movie. I would agree with this because I <laughs> had I had the cop yeah. I had the issue that had uh, the parody of Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, Rosemary's Baby. I didn't see it. I didn't actually see the movie until exactly. uh, maybe about ten years ago. Had a vacation, rented it, and went. Not only did I know the movie shot for shot because of the Mad Mi- parody, but You've it was like I couldn't I couldn't take the movie seriously. Yeah. Because I'll go like when the Satan comes to pregnant, it's like I, I all I'm thinking is I can't take it, I can't take it. That skinny guy over in the corner singing Scooby Dooby Doo, which was Frank Sinatra yeah. watching, you know. <laughs> it's like he has his father's eyes. What was his father? Dean Martin, you know. I mean, all the punchlines kept coming back, yeah, and totally ruined the movie for me. I think it was a comedy, 
Mm. I'm not sure that's how it was intended, but I sure laughed. So here's here's a curious observation that I'll just throw out there. But you guys were all fairly young when you got right. bit. I was much older. Mm-hmm. And the three of you all describe experiences of you know opening these pages, particularly Derek, seeing this whole new world to investigate at a time magic. when there was no YouTube, there was not... You know, a, t- a ton of stuff to read. That, that may a have curious been... observation. I think you're on to a very interesting point. But mine, I was much older. Mine is a single issue that blows my mind on the medium of what the medium is capable of or mm-hmm. just, you know, changes up my perception. Of None it. of us knew the concept of medium at the time. Sure. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe that's why the circulation was so high in World War II because you didn't really have TV. You had radio, but, you know, how much radio are you going to get? In the you know foxhole, mm-hmm. but it's actually kind of interesting. You, I mean, in the internet age, if you pick up a comic now and you don't understand the backstory of it, you can go to Wikipedia. You can go to any number of but sites. Do you go to, a, to which, Wikipedia, or you just go eh, comics, whatever? Which is their defense. Uh, would yeah. both DC and Marvel say why they don't do the caption boxes that then explain like see such as an issue? Mm-hmm. Joe Casada has publicly said, "You've got the internet," which I would, ag- I'm going to agree with where I think Michael's heading is. That's BS. Yeah. Because yeah, you pick it up, you don't get an explanation. You go, which is what happened to you in Countdown. Mm-hmm. Countdown is not referencing anything else yet. Clearly tied in, where actually the more important stuff is happening in another book, and they're not telling you what other book it is. I've actually been keeping up with Countdown through Wikipedia. <laughs> It'll tell you, you know, this entry okay, is current up to issue 34. But so you're the guy doing it. It breaks down each plot line and says where they are now. Yeah. So. Okay. And if and you pick up the Illuminati, right, and you've never read any of the Inhuman stuff, and you don't know who Black Bolt is, you go to Wikipedia, you get that whole and that whole part of the storyline, that backstory fills it in for But I end. think that's a presumption, again, you're, you're trying to match this form to an assumption that everybody uses Wikipedia. But that's simply not true. It's like the argument years ago about online criticism. I mean, we are in a vacuum to some extent. We are not. Like, everybody hated what Brian Michael Bendis did with Avengers Disassembled, and yet that was the highest-selling book Marvel had that year. But if you listened to the Internet, it should have been the worst-selling book because everybody hated it. Well, those are just the people that bothered to get online and, and, right. and complained about it. Ones. You know, so... I would agree with you. I think we can't. It, it's like it bothers me when I go to see a movie where there's information in the movie that requires that you read the website. The Highlander movie did that. Sure. Yeah. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying it's a great design. I'm just saying mm-hmm. it's a fact of life now. I actually so, think I mean, the problem available. now is that there there's too much media that a, a kid is not going to pour over a, a 100 page issue again and again looking for answers or being curious about this. He's got a Wii to go play. And yet they do that with Harry Potter. Sure. All right. I mean, there's an exception to it, yeah. and and that's what uh, like Scholastic and every public, every regular uh, prose publisher is trying to make lightning strike twice with that. Because yeah, I'd say. Can I argue with that, that though? Is that yes, the the Harry Potter books is you know a phenomenon or whatever. But do you think a lot of it came from the fact that it was just a trend? You know what I mean? Like. I mean, yeah, they're good books and, and everything like else. Judy Bloom books and. Or, but it's just one kinds. of those things where it's like you had to scour it because everybody. How were those, Michael? Good, delicious. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like you had to scour it because God, all your it's me, all the other people at your school were reading it, and you didn't want to be left sure. out because. 
you but were, why couldn't the comic book achieve that? No, same I'm just saying though. I mean, but that, that's a word of mouth thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's not you know well, somebody and, gave you a box of Harry Potter books. Well, and you when they it start and, on the news, when they start going, the new Harry Potter book is coming out at midnight. It's, it's blah, blah, blah. a social phenomenon, and now it's a trend. You know what I mean? So, so I don't know. I mean, I so, think to some level that's true as well. But I think with the kids, it's because they really did like them. Because I have plenty of students that say they won't pick up a Harry Potter book. They hate it. They think it's stupid. Devil and worship. What? Devil worship. Devil worship, yeah. And so, I mean, there are kids that can resist it. But and kids react, too. Kids kids want to be different sometimes. They want to be, oh, I'm not going to go along with it. I'm going to buck the trend. I'm going to be original, just like all my friends. But I think there are a lot of kids that are legitimately uh, obsessed, like we're obsessed with comics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. Well, the other thing, too, is kids, I mean, kids these days don't have the exposure to comics, or at least, let's say, comic-themed Things like we did. I mean, there's not well, a Spider-Man on. or... Uh, they, they got hooked via cartoons. You got Fantastic Four movies, X-Men movies. Back, back sure, but You got the Spider-Man. I mean, you had a Spider-Man series on MTV, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? So here's, had, the, here's the problem with that, though, that we always complain about, that they change the comic to match the, the show that's hot. They the change, media. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Superman to match Smallville, or actually they changed Smallville to match the comic, didn't they? Somewhere in between. But either way, the, the, the popular media is now always affecting comics, and the comic book fans go, oh, we don't want them. We like that old, you know. Mm-hmm. But you, you have to argue that this is what is going to drive in people. It's either going to be word of mouth or it's going to be some other media that hooks them because there are fewer comic book stores, and who walks into them? Who well, that's going to be the- part of the question when the Iron Man movie comes out and people go out and see Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man, and they're going to yeah. go buy the Iron Man comic where now he's head of shield and he's got all this baggage from civil war yeah. and is that is that going to con- he's a recovering alcoholic is it going to turn well yeah which they'll get to in eventually movies. Movies. yeah you know. but will that will that turn them into comic fans i, mean, I don't know though because right now the way these movies and tv shows and everything are being pushed is the comic is the last thing they're pushing they're pushing the video games oh, yeah. they're pushing the toys and everything else so it's like the, by the time the kid's done with the property, they're not going to want to read about really, it. That, they already know everything about it because they saw it in the TV and they played the video game. That's so. got to be the new comic book business model, though. I mean, it's always about how can you expand your franchise to, you know, sheets and collector's cups and things like right. that. And then also, how do you market to a movie? I mean, everybody's now, I did a 12-issue maxi series, and I've written the script, and I'm shopping it around. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, but you bring up, I failed to mention one other thing that influenced me, Slurpee Cups. Oh, of course. No, quite honestly, 1973, they, uh, DC had 60 collector Slurpee Cups. You had a picture of a superhero on the front and their origin in a paragraph on the back in Secret Identity. And you had a little catalog, you know, a little page that would tell you a checkoff sheet that would say what there was. That had some members of the JSA, so it, it like it came what along about? with the Justice League of America. So then suddenly I had an Hour Man cup, Ooh. and I had a Cosmic Boy cup, and a Brainiac Five cup, and who the hell were these people? You know, it was just um, they did the same thing for Marvel somewhere around here. I've a Kill yeah, Marvel Raven cup. Yeah, Marvel was like the next year. What about they, the Taco Bell pint glasses? Yeah, have a couple of those too. Fantastic. But you know, yeah, but they, that was to me because it included the trivia. And the Marvel ones were a slightly different shape, and on the back they actually had the heads of the characters. It was all Wurbloom. They were describing their own stories, whereas mm-hmm. the DC ones were like just like an encyclopedia definition. But there were some amazing, uh, you know, characters included in that. There was a Metamorpho Cup. 
<laughs> but you know what, though? I will. But all the Teen Titans, and you knew the affiliations, and it was just like, and you got a Coke Slurpee. So, I mean, really. But win, you know what? Win, win. <laughs> maybe, maybe we're looking at it wrong, though, because if you look at... I have at, a Howard the Duck glass from that series, from the Marvel series. So, No, but maybe because, like, we're not seeing a lot of, in, uh, I should say, interest in Marvel and DC, but the kids are nuts for, for anime and, and manga right now. So mm-hmm. maybe that's where the market's going, and maybe... You know, because there's a lot of kids that are way into like uh, what was that uh, uh, the the one with the headband? What's that called? Naruto. Uh, Naruto. Naruto and uh, Inuyasha and all that In- stuff. Inuyasha. There's yeah. something else too. Full Metal Alchemist. Bleach. Okay. Bleach is a little more adult though. That's slightly. But I'm just saying still, though, like I actually watched a little of that creepy. Yeah. But I'm just saying so, and actually with the younger kids that I work with. A lot of them have the collected like Pokemon comic kind of things and the mm-hmm. the uh, Yu-Gi-Oh kind of things. So I guess there's still kind of a, a love for comics, but it's just changed now. It's changed. So it's not like the mainstream ones that we know, but the kids are still right. reading comics. They're because just DC different. and Marvel aren't in Dragon Ball. They're not creating the characters for the new generation. They're trying to repackage their old characters. Whereas, certainly, you look at some of the big marketing, like SpongeBob SquarePants, huge. They've tried doing comics of SpongeBob. Not that good a seller, but it's out, that, it's out there. Isn't that kind of why comics always goes back to the icons, though? The, mm-hmm. Because people see the, the symbol of the Flash on some guy's shirt or the Superman shield. You can never really kill those characters. You can never really evolve those characters. Yeah, It's true. They, it's kind of interesting too. Uh, just one other observation that I flashed on when you're talking about the uh, the manga and stuff. If you read any any of the digested stories, any of our the collections, the uh, the trades, when they put them together, they don't have the density of ads that the regular yeah. comics. And God, it's gotten obscene. It's like every other page yeah. in the comic is an ad. I'm trying to remember what it was like to read. It's comics a vicious cycle. I mean, you, you lower the circulation. You got to have more ads to pay to be able to publish well, it. Well, the comics are also more expensive to produce now because using a higher quality paper and a, a more expensive. Uh, I, I'm processors. okay with ads. I'm, I'm because look. if the story is good, I'll, I'll get a trade later. Yeah, down the road. I'm not upset. And, and I'm not more upset expensive about, creators. I mean, I'm honestly, not upset about it. I'm just I, so much, yeah. but I think it's part of the reason why people do buy trades. It's and, the six-page pullout of the guy eating the hot dog. That yeah, yeah, yeah. You. Uh, over and a over little over Mad again. Magazine insert. Yeah. Or when you turn to the ad, ad you're trying to go, and the ad is like almost in the style of the story you've been reading. You're going, yes, I can't. That bothers me. What that troubles me? Yeah, especially when it's a big reveal on the next page, and you turn. The pages you had, and you're like, I, I don't get. Oh, this is that, Damn it, <laughs> hunger. Yeah. yeah. So, but manga, manga never has the ads. I mean, it's all it's solid, mm-hmm. cover to cover story. It costs more though per issue. Is... Nine bucks for one of those. Yeah. Things. I mean, what's that? Three comics. Good point. And yet, manga really isn't saturating the market in the same way that. Yeah, it's been in a Barnes and Noble lately. It is satur- It is the. It is better selling than American comics. It's just not selling at American comic book stores. It's at Barnes and Noble and Borders. Apparently, um, on fr- Fridays is when um, those stores get their new their new mangas. And, and Scholastic, uh, <laughs> Scholastic is selling. A, you know yeah. that uh, you know that it's the, those aisles are are thick and and weirdly you know kids will just pick up the new one and sit down and read right there. Yeah. Well, that's good, though. That's good because 
hopefully eventually when those kids get a little older and can appreciate more, let's say, mature, and not to say that the stuff they're reading isn't mature, but maybe let's say more, let's say mainstream, then maybe they'll cross mm-hmm. over, or maybe that's good for the, the industry. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll see. We cannot complain about anybody or any kid reading. We need more smart I am kids. not complaining no. about no, that. No, I'm not just saying all. we no. need to encourage, no matter if it's manga or Marvel or whatever. I, I, I want you to change your opinion, Michael. Reading. Go ahead and teach your child to read. All right, for you, I'll do it. Do Thank it for you. the good of the I'm world. I'm going to give... Uh, Grace, Astro City, City. Number, she's number 16, for her it's third time. birthday, Grace will, will get Astro City. And, and nothing else, so she has to read it a hundred <laughs> times. All right, so well, true. thank you, gentlemen. I, uh, I enjoyed our conversation. I hope uh, the, the people listening enjoyed this crazy new format. Uh, if you'd like it or if you've got an idea of what you want us to do uh, next month, that's editor at Fanboy Planet signing off. We're the boys. We're not really the boys. Those are the guys that beat up superheroes. We're not them. And thanks once again to the great Luke Ski for use of his music in this podcast. Visit Luke Ski at www.lukeski.com.